joy to spend this Lord's Day with you all, and I wanted to thank the Barbosa family in particular for hosting me this afternoon. It was a great encouragement to me, and uh, just on a personal note, I want to say how much I appreciate your session um, and your fellowship as a congregation. Um, I had a little bit of time to talk with your pastor. Uh, we walked from the church building to the seminary building before supper on Friday night and had a, a wonderful walk and spoke of spiritual things and always encouraged by him. And so grateful for this opportunity to do a pulpit exchange. Uh, with that, let's turn to the ministry of God's Word, read, going to the Psalter, to Psalm 17. Psalm 17, beginning in verse 10. They have closed up their fat hearts with their proud mouths. They speak proudly. They have now surrounded us in our steps. They have set their eyes crouching down to the earth as a lion is eager to tear his prey and like a young lion lurking in secret places. Arise, O Lord. Confront him. Cast him down. Deliver my life from the wicked with your sword. With your hand from men, O Lord, from men of the world who have their portion in this life and whose belly you fill with your hidden treasure. They are satisfied with children and leave the rest of their possession for their babes. As for me, I will see your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. Grass withers. Flower fades, the word of God stands forever. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Let us pray together. Lord God, as we stand by night in your house, lifting up holy hands, praising you, blessing your name because you have blessed us in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing. Lord, we come with anticipation. We come with expectation in true faith that you might cause your word to run and to be glorified. Lord, we pray that you would give us spiritual eyesight, that we might be able to behold wondrous things out of your law. Above all, Lord, we think of the words of our Lord Jesus to his disciples on the road to Emmaus, and later on in the upper room, Lord, when he told those who followed him that he was present in the law of Moses, in the prophets, and in the Psalms. We look for him there now, praying this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, during the 1950s, Michael May was blinded by a chemical explosion in his parents' garage at the age of three. From three years of age and on, he was blind. And although he was blind, uh, Michael May refused to let his disability define him. Um, he took risks. He pushed hard. He overcame obstacles. He got married. He had two children. He started a business. He went skydiving. He lectured, he learned the guitar, and became the first ever 
blind CIA analysts. Uh, he even won three bronze medals um, in skiing at the 1984 uh, Winter Paralympics. In fact, he holds the world record for blind downhill skiing, clocking in at 65 miles per hour. Just imagine going that fast without the ability to see. It's pretty remarkable. Nevertheless, although he learned to live a full life, Michael May still had a latent desire, an earnest desire to see. One day he met a very famous ophthalmologist named Daniel Goodman, who told him of an experimental new procedure that involved a cornea transplant. He vacillated a bit, thought about it, took some counsel, and eventually went ahead with the surgery. So in the year 2000, at the age of 46, he sat in a chair across from his wife while the doctors took off the bandages from his face. After 43 years of blindness, he could see. He could see. And here's what he said about those first few moments. All of a sudden, there's the overwhelming whoosh of visual input, of things resolving into colors and the shapes, images whooshing everywhere. He saw his wife for the first time time. He saw his two sons for the first time, not to mention the rest of the world having been blinded since the age of three. Now, just to be, to be realistic about this, um, having regained eyesight was only part of his, um, only part of the equation. His eyes could see, but after 43 years of blindness, his his brain had trouble interpreting the visual data. And to this very day, um, he has a hard time putting the visual pieces together. He has to work and labor at things that come much more naturally from most people. Nevertheless, since his surgery, uh, Michael May can do something he wasn't able to do since he was three years of age. And that is, quite simply, to see. Describing uh, McCondre Lane in San Francisco, he says this, look at how green the trees are. Look how they overhang the street. It's like we stepped into old Europe. It's like we stepped into a whole new world. Now, why do I tell you the story of Michael May, a man who was blind but now can see? Well, I tell you that story because it is a dim reflection of a twofold spiritual reality. It's a picture of what has happened to each of us who have embraced Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Because what is our testimony? I once was blind, but now I see. I was blinded by the God of this age, I was enslaved to my passions. Um, I was spiritually dead, and the Lord gave me spiritual sight. Now I can see Jesus by faith. Amazing grace. Uh, but the story of Michael May is also a dim picture of another spiritual reality that you have not yet experienced. I have not yet experienced. Because congregation of the Lord Jesus 
though we now have spiritual sight, though we now can see, we walk by faith and not by sight. We see, yes, but through a glass darkly in this present age. And it's only then that we see face to face. Uh, Like a man going under anesthesia, each of you, as the Lord tarries, will die. You will sleep the sleep of death. And although your soul will behold the face of God in light and glory in heaven, your body, being still united to Christ, will rest in the grave till the resurrection. But it's at the resurrection, like a man waking from sleep, each of you will have the bandages fully and finally removed. For in that day, not only in soul, but in body, you will see God in the face of Jesus Christ. Like Michael May, you will see as if for the first time. Theologians love to call this the beatific vision. And that's what we will explore tonight, the prospect of seeing God. Among other places in Scripture, this truth is taught in Psalm 17. It's a psalm of innocence in which King David uh, pleads his just cause before the Lord, contrasting himself with his enemies. But the beatific vision is what comes into view at the very close of the psalm in the final verse, where he says, in contrast to his adversaries, as for me, I will see your face in righteousness, I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. As we prepare to gather around the visible word of the Lord's Supper, let us consider this doctrine in three stages. As we move in this passage from zero vision to partial vision to finally the beatific vision. As we move, spiritually speaking, from blindness to 2020 eyesight, beginning at the very beginning. The unconverted man suffers from zero vision. Spiritually speaking, the unconverted man is blind. Uh, David describes his unconverted enemies in two places. Uh, The first is in verses 9 to 12 where he describes them as a kind of crouching lion, hidden dragon, fierce, malicious adversaries. But there's another place where he talks about them, and that's in verse 14, which we just read. He says, With your hand from men, O Lord, from the men of the world who have their portion in this life and whose belly you fill with your hidden treasure, they are satisfied with their children and leave the rest of their possession for their babes. Here, King David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is giving us certain marks of the unconverted man. First, they are called men of the world. The unconverted love the world. They love the things, the baubles of this 
world. They take good things, gifts from God, and turn them into idols. They bow down before the things of earth. They're marked by the cares of this world, preoccupied with this age. Their eyes are always turned downward. They never look up. They're locked inside a closed system. They're men of the world. Second, they are men who have their portion in this life. So their portion, their treasure, their delight, their glory is tied exclusively to this present evil age. They've staked everything on this life and not the life to come. Third, whose belly you fill with your hidden treasure. God fills their belly, but they do not acknowledge his kindness because their God is their belly. Fourth, and finally, they are satisfied with children and leave the rest of their possession for their babes. All of their treasures are on this side of life. They're buried with them in the grave. They're a State plan doesn't go beyond the horizon line of their own lifetime. It's very similar to what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 3, For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. And here are the marks of those people whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is their shame who set their mind on earthly things. The unconverted man suffers from zero vision. Spiritually speaking, he is blind. He has eyes only for this world, the flesh and the devil. He cannot see God because he refuses to acknowledge his lordship. And I would be remiss as a gospel minister to not plead with everyone here to, in the right manner, uh, consider your ways. Do any of these marks apply to you? Are you a man, woman, or child of this world? Is your portion tied exclusively to this life? Is your God your belly and its appetites, whether food or fornication? Do you live If you're honest with yourself for sports, for clothes, for music, for social status, for cheap pleasure, did you come into church this morning and this evening as a kind of spiritual zombie, walking dead, spiritually calloused, spiritually blind? If that's the case, then I urge you, I plead with you to repent And to believe in the gospel, I exhort you and invite you that there is one who is better than anything this world has to offer. There is one who will satisfy you as nothing your flesh can ever do, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And so look to him. Look and live. Turn to Jesus. Jesus is more than enough. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, for neither rust nor moth doth corrupt. If not, then the unconverted man, woman or child, remains blind, suffering from zero vision. I said we're going to go through 
what we could call ocular stages. And the first one is zero vision, and that leads us to the second stage, the glorious stage of the converted man who enjoys partial vision. The converted man enjoys partial vision. If you trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, then the scales are removed from your eyes. You can see. Again, amazing grace. How sweet the sound. Uh, You can see yourself. You're a sinner saved by grace. You can see creation. This is a good gift from a kind heavenly father. You can see the bankruptcy of the world. It's a broken system in rebellion against God. You can see the deceitfulness of sin. It's bait on a hook designed to pull you down to perdition. But most of all, you can see everything, everything in light of Jesus Christ. That's the glorious privilege of the sons and daughters of the king who've had your eyes opened. You can see everything in light of Jesus Christ. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. If you're trusting in Christ, it's like you just stepped into a whole new world. This is David's position right here in the psalm. He's a converted man. It's our position as converted men, women, and children. And yet, I said... And I still say that the converted man enjoys partial, not perfect, vision. Why? Why is it only partial? Well, it's because we walk by faith and not by sight. We see, yes, but through a glass, darkly. Indwelling sin and the miseries of this life cloud our vision. And that is why David does not end his prayer to the Lord in the present. He looks ahead to the future, to the end of all things, to the blessed hope of the Christian, to the final stage in this ocular journey. Unconverted man enjoys zero vision or suffers from zero vision. The converted man enjoys partial vision, but the glorified man enjoys the beatific vision, spiritual 2020 eyesight. And we'll end our reflections on that note, on the beatific vision itself. In contrast to his enemies, King David says, as for me, I will see your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. Now, it's true This language of waking up could reflect the fact that this is an evening psalm in which the psalmist falls asleep and in faith physically awakes. Uh, It's also true that, again, we have partial vision of God now by faith, uh, day by day, morning by morning. As Paul says, we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are transformed from one degree of glory to another, even by the Spirit of the Lord. That's all true. Look at verse 15 carefully. 
Look at the force of the language. Look at the future tense of this translation. As for me, I will see your face. I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. This forceful language, this future tense, suggests something beyond the present. It suggests, it communicates nothing short of a beatific vision. The prospect, however daring, however provocative, of seeing God himself. Congregation, think about this for a moment. The beatific vision is the goal of the Christian life. All the goals you set, all the hopes and dreams you have, the chief, the most significant, the most profound goal you have is a sight of the Lord himself. And however true that is, as I even talk about it, there is something about it that perhaps throws red flags on the playing field. It sounds off alarms in your head. Because if you think about it, how can I see an invisible God? We believe with the Westminster Confession that uh, God is a most pure spirit without body, parts, or passions. He dwells in unapproachable light whom no man has seen nor can see. Even the seraphim, the burning ones, in his heavenly throne room, cover their faces with their wings. They cannot bear the sight of the thrice holy God. How dare I even speak about the prospect of seeing God? How can we even speak that way? And if somehow we were able to look upon him without burning out our retinas, how could we survive? And if we did, would it not destroy the creator-creature distinction? If this is the goal of the Christian life, it seems to raise all sorts of difficult questions. And yet, the Bible is true. David says, I will see your face. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. It has to mean something. Let me be clear. God will always be the infinite creator, and we will always be finite creatures. Um, although the resurrection body will have different qualities, it will be the same creaturely body as before. All of that, all those qualifications are important, and yet the language has to mean something. What does it mean? Well, I believe we can say two things in closing about the beatific vision. First, you will see God at your death when you depart this life. We could say that this is an intellectual vision, a vision with the mind's eye. As the Westminster Confession puts it, the souls of the righteous, being then made perfect in holiness, are received into the highest heavens where they behold the face of God in light and glory. Uh, consider the words of the Apostle Paul when he says in 2 Corinthians 12 that whether in the body or out of the body, he is unsure. There is a man 
most likely him who was caught up into the third heaven. He heard inexpressible words, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. A foretaste of what it's like for the departed soul to go into the heavenly places. Uh, Jonathan Edwards writes that the pleasure of seeing God is so great and so strong that it takes the full possession of the heart. It fills it brimful so that there shall be no room for any sorrow, no room in any corner for anything of an adverse nature from joy. There is no darkness. There is no darkness that can bear such powerful light. And this is an important realization for those who are mourning the loss of loved ones. This is an important realization for those who are approaching uh, Jordan's stormy banks, who are coming to the close of their earthly life. And in all reality, none of us knows just how close we are. Could be one heartbeat away from death. And this is an encouragement to us to develop this kind of heavenly-minded piety, that when you die, you depart to be with the Lord, and there is an intellectual vision, a vision in the mind's eye of God in some sense. And this is a good check for us, that however important horizontal activities are, whether political action or cultural renewal, um, they have a place, but they are not primary. We need to restore a proper verticality, a spirituality, a heavenliness to our piety. As one author puts it, you aim for heaven, you get earth thrown in. We need to be looking to the heavenly places from whence cometh our help. I'm afraid the world is too much with us. You will see God at your death. That's a glorious thing. But even then, the beatific vision is not complete. Like Michael May, the bandages still lie upon your physical eyes in the grave. The body is still in the tomb. And so there is a second truth, and that is that you will see God at the resurrection. And that's really what I think David is ultimately pointing us toward. I will see your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. Figurative language, poetic words that signify the blessed hope of the Christian, the resurrection of the body. Not only shall you be openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment, but you will see God. As larger catechism puts it, made perfectly holy and happy both in body and soul, especially in the immediate vision and fruition of God the Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ, and of the Holy Spirit to all eternity. Now, as I've said before, this will surely include an intellectual vision, a vision with the mind's eye. That was already true, at least in part, of departed souls in heaven. But the Bible also seems to teach that your resurrected physical eyes will behold something of God's splendor. Think of the book of Job in the shadowlands of the Old Testament where he says, For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, Yet, in my flesh 
shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another. In the resurrection, Job testifies he will see with his physical eyes something of the glory of God. That is true. How is that possible? How can we behold an invisible God? Well, congregation, I believe that the answer to this puzzle, this mystery, this conundrum, is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the God-man. The Son of God incarnate. What did Jesus say on this earth? He said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. And this truth, however mysterious, led the Puritan John Owen to argue that at the resurrection, you will behold the glory of the invisible God in the face of Jesus Christ, in the face of the God-man. What we need is a Christ-centered account of the beatific vision, that in your flesh you shall see God in the person of the incarnate Savior, whom you shall see for yourself, and your eyes shall behold, and not another. Now, both aspects of this reality, the intellectual vision of God in your soul, and the ocular vision of Christ with your eyes, if you got hold of this, it would transform and transfigure us. And such a thought must shape our piety today. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him, as he is, and everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. This is the goal of your Christian life. It's to behold the face of your incarnate Savior and to be able to say that in my flesh I shall see my God. In the meantime, in the meantime, however long Christ tarries, we behold Jesus by faith, in the pages of Holy Scripture, and in the elements of bread and wine. We see through a glass darkly, but then face to face, when we awake in his likeness. And on that day, that blessed day, it will be as if we are seen for the first time. Every blade of grass will be greener, the sky bluer, the gold finer, the water brighter, more glorious than crystal. And yet I tell you, congregation of the Lord Jesus, that none of these riches, however wonderful they are, will compare to the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It's not a renewed earth that will capture our affections or even the glory of heaven itself. It is the glory of heaven's king that will enrapture us, that will capture us, that will captivate us for all eternity. The bride, 
eyes, not her garments, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace. Not at the crown he gifteth, but on his pierced hand. The lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. And may our prayer be this. Even so, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen. Let us pray. O Father, beloved Heavenly Father, who sent forth your Son, born of a woman, born under the law, we rejoice that we see Christ now by faith in the pages of Holy Scripture, and we long for the day when we see him by sight, face to face, and are transformed and transfigured by that glorious sight. O Lord, give us a foretaste now. Give us a glimpse now of that marriage supper of the Lamb and of that beatific vision in Christ Jesus. We pray this in his strong name. Amen.